Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined as ever by Editorial Director Dieter Rankin. Dieter, welcome along to the podcast. Uh, it's Tuesday morning after the Bahrain Grand Prix. We had hoped to get this done on Monday, but we were stymied a little bit by some uh, uncooperative Bahraini Wi-Fi. But uh, we've had a chance for the dust to settle a little bit on the first race of the season, and we have much to discuss, it seems. Absolutely, absolutely. You're quite correct. It was actually rather disappointing. Uh, Sunday evening, of course, the Wi-Fi was chock-a-block full with, with photographers sending photographs, the journalists all filing you name it. And then, of course, yesterday morning, it just didn't really work. And then I, I was flying all day yesterday, got into Dusseldorf Airport very, very late last night, uh, then drove home. That was another hour and a half journey. So here we are, bright and early Tuesday morning. And welcome to you, Michael. Welcome to all our listeners, etc. Well, it's time to have a look back at the 2023 Bahrain Grand Prix. And uh, there's something a little bit familiar about all this. We've had a Ferrari struggling with reliability We've had Mercedes not really on the pace, and we've had Red Bull absolutely dominant. Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez locking out the front row of the grid, and Verstappen never really being threatened as he took a pretty consummate win. His first win, in fact, at Bahrain, and on the form that he and Red Bull showed, it looks like the first of many this year. Now, Dieter, we were talking in preseason about uh, hoping for a close title fight with many different teams and drivers in contention at different races. But uh, if we look at our knee-jerk reactions after the first race, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Totally, totally accurate saying or expression there, Michael. Knee-jerk. And Formula One has got this absolute obsession with, uh, you know, you look at the first race and you say, oh, that's what the season's going to be like. Well, if we have a look at the history of, of Bahrain, uh, very, very often we've had some bright lights appearing suddenly and then the next couple of races, they, they, the form drops away. It's a very specific circuit. High, high abrasion or degradation, as we call it. Um, it's got some strange characteristics in that it's got long sweeping curbs, but it's also got some low speed uh, traction type corners. So, yes, of course, it suited the Red Bull. I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. But all I'm saying is the fact that Mercedes weren't there doesn't mean they won't be there for the rest of the year. Equally, the fact that Aston Martin was there does not mean that they'll be there up there for the rest of the year. Um, you know, unreliability on the part of Ferrari, that can be fixed. Uh, you know, I remember Ron Dennis, the, um, uh, the former team principal of McLaren, one day saying that you can fix a fast, unreliable car, but you can't make a slow car fast, regardless of how reliable it is. And, you know, Mercedes tended to prove this last year. Uh, but equally, uh, if, if we look back at, at what happened last year, yes, Ferrari had the, had the original impetus. Then they sort of fell off during the rest of the year. This time round, they don't have the reliability at the beginning of the year, but they seem to have a car that was there or thereabouts. And if we leave out the circuit specificity, specificity of the of Bahrain, then fundamentally um, I do believe that that we could still have a very, very good season ahead of us. Well talking about Ferrari, they seemed quite upbeat after the test session that we had at Bahrain, but they didn't seem quite that upbeat after Friday practice and after Saturday practice and qualifying uh, during the Bahrain Grand Prix. It certainly seemed uh, during the race that Mercedes and Ferrari were both suffering with a greater tyre deck, certainly than Red Bull and certainly than uh, than Aston Martin. And you mentioned Aston Martin there. They well, What a step forward they seem to have made uh, from 2022. Uh, Fernando Alonso really rolling back the years 
probably the second quickest car out there after the Red Bulls. Some brilliant overtakes on Hamilton and Carlos Sainz. Um, and very, very impressive race pace from Aston Martin as well, I thought. Yes, absolutely. But again, that comes down to the specific characteristics of the circuit. Low speed traction, very low tire degradation on the car. Uh, Jeddah will be completely different. And I'm certainly not in any way suggesting that they won't be in the mix. But I don't think we'll be talking about Aston Martin in as glowing terms after Jeddah as we are now after Bahrain. Uh, you know, Formula One seems to have this absolute obsession with every race has got to be an absolute cracker or it damages the share price and whatever. This is a sport. You have ebb and flow. You have certain drivers, teams, cars that, that, that excel on a certain circuit, not on others. We, we have the same on tennis. You know, you have people who are superb on, on, on lawn, on, on uh, clay, on, on asphalt, whatever. And, you know, we've got to accept it accordingly. This is not going to be a five-star jackpot every every fortnight what well, we spoke about uh in pre-season the fact that the, there's a lot of continuation in 2023 from 2022 we've not got the year zero that we had in terms of the regulations from 22 when the teams were required to build an absolutely new car there's a lot of carryover and we thought and you'd mentioned that Red Bull, it's not surprising that they would be out front and they would be the favourites because they were so dominant last year. But Aston Martin only finished seventh in the constructors last year. And, you know, the circuit specificity of Bahrain notwithstanding, it looked as if, and certainly some of the Mercedes and the Ferrari drivers were suggesting that Aston Martin might now be the second quickest car. And it underlines just the incredible step forward that they have made over the winter break. Uh, yes, but then let's go back to 2021. Yuki Tsunoda came in, came ninth in, in Bahrain, and everybody said, you know, he's going to be on the podium this year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as we know, that didn't happen. Again, we're coming down to this, this, this Bahrain circuit. That said, we should also look at the Aston Martin issue. Last year, they had a very slow start to the season. A championship placing is judged over an entire year. Um, they had a very, very slow start. They brought in a B version of the car in Spain. They then had to get to understand that car, which they only really did come sort of British Grand Prix time. And then gradually they started improving. But I think the other issue here is that the entire technical team is either brand new or fairly new. Um, uh, Lawrence Stroll, the team owner of Aston Martin, of course, the father of Lance Stroll, basically opened his checkbook. He went and bought, in inverted commas, Dan Fellows from Red Bull. He went and bought Eric Blandon from Mercedes. He went and bought Luca Fabato from uh, Sauber. And fundamentally, these three have worked very, very well together. But it does take a season to come together, and that's exactly what's happened. So, yes, they are the outliers in that they have got a brand-new uh, technical team, and they started off a very low base in 2022. Well, if we look at Mercedes now, the team that had swept all before them in the uh, the first few years of the turbo hybrid era, they slipped back to be the third quickest team last year. And uh, they had a pretty downbeat weekend. We had Toto Wolff, um, a, a fairly extraordinary admission, I thought, on the Saturday before the race, admitting that the W14 package won't be competitive in its in its current form. Um, and then after the race, they finished a pretty distant, well, Lewis Hamilton finished fifth, George Russell finished seventh. Toto Wolff said it was their, their worst day. Um, we spoke in preseason, Dieter, about how Mercedes are planning. They've got a sort of plan B concept uh, in place in case plan A doesn't work. And it seems like they've admitted that plan A won't work. 
But with the budget cap that we've now got in place, they can't just throw half a billion dollars at this. They've got to work to very strict parameters. So if they are going to pursue this plan B, do they have enough money in the bank to be able to do that effectively? I doubt it, frankly. Uh, but of course, I don't know the exact finances. I don't know how structured they are. And we don't know exactly what plan B will entail. Will plan B be basically an, um, a W15, i.e. a totally new car, or will it be a W14B? So it depends on which sort of path they take. What they have said is I'll have to get rid of the zero side pod uh, concept. Uh, does that mean a completely new monocoque, or does it just mean add-ons and bolt-ons and different bodywork? We don't know exactly what plan B entails. If it's a new car, a completely new car, clean sheet design, I do not believe they have the budget cap available, no. If they do, it will impinge very, very seriously on, A, their development throughout the year and also potentially on next year's car because, of course, you start designing next year's car this year under this year's budget cap. So fundamentally, I do believe that uh, Mercedes do face a financial challenge in addition to technical and sporting challenges. And of course, Lewis Hamilton is out of contract at the end of this year. There have been some people suggesting, Jensen Button, Damon Hill, suggesting that maybe Hamilton is hedging his bets a bit, waiting to see how competitive Mercedes are this year before committing further to Mercedes. Hamilton himself actually refuted those allegations, said how happy he was at Mercedes, how happy he was with Toto Wolff. But do you think there is an element of that? Is he just waiting to see how competitive Mercedes are going to be before he commits to continuing uh, his Formula One career with them? I don't think it's a matter of committing or not committing to Mercedes. I think it, it's a, more a matter of establishing the financial baseline. When Mercedes have a dominant car, they can go to him and say, Lewis, we're giving you everything. We're giving you a car that can win every race, can win an eighth title. Sorry, what do you want? Do you want money or do you want that? Now he turns around and he says, I'm sorry, but it's unlikely that I'm going to win a or many races. It's unlikely that I'll win an eighth championship. You have to compensate me. So if anything, it's not really a matter of will we see Lewis wearing the um, the, the, the star, the three-pointed star next year. It's more, I think, a matter of establishing the financial baseline. Well, looking at the, uh, the knee-jerk reactions after the first race, it appears that Red Bull are out in front. We've got uh, a sort of three-way fight for second place between Aston Martin, Mercedes and Ferrari. But if we look now down uh, into F1's midfield, the teams that are, are fighting to be best of the rest, um, Valtteri Bottas finished in uh, quite a good eighth place, I thought, for Alfa Romeo. Now, uh, you were speaking to uh, Alessandro Aluni Bravi before the race. He said that Alfa's race pace was going to be very good and they'd be the, the team to watch. And they've certainly made a good start to 23 so far. Absolutely. A very low tyre degradation. I think that is the, uh, the secret. Uh, Jan Monshow is a, an underrated technical director. He came from sports car racing and therefore wasn't really that known. It's not as though he'd sort of worked his way up the, the Formula One paddock. And uh, because of that, he was a sort of a Yan Hu uh, type, type character. But he has proven to have transferred the sports car fundamentals very effectively to Formula One. What do you need? You need a car with low tire degradation. You need a car that's really well balanced. And you need a car that ultimately is, is user-friendly. And that's what you need in sports cars. And I think that's what he's brought across to Formula One. Will they win championships with that car? That, that 
team know? Are they able to, to perform respectively? Absolutely. And that's exactly what they're doing. And again, I think it comes down to this sort of quiet confidence that they have there in, in Switzerland. There's no bravado, no big shouting. They just get on with it. Yeah, an interesting time at uh, Sauber Alfa Romeo. Of course, they're transitioning into what will be the Audi factory team for 2026. So uh, a lot of interesting developments down at Hinville over the next few years. Um, if we look down from Bottas, uh, Pierre Gasly had uh, a very good Alpine debut after a very poor qualifying session in which he was dead last. But he fought his way up to ninth place, so scoring points on debut and uh, certainly compared well with uh, Esteban Ocon, his teammate, who had uh, all sorts of problems a lot of penalties during the race for various misdemeanors, and he ultimately retired. Um, there, there are rumors that uh, Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon, there's still no love lost between them after uh, a few run-ins that they had in their junior career. And uh, I wonder if Gasly will secretly be quite happy to have uh, got one over on Ocon on his Alpine debut. I'm sure, I'm sure he would have been, but equally, even if they're the best of mates, he'd be happy to get one over. I, you know, I honestly believe, look, it's, it's great. It's a great headline. Uh, Ocon, Gasly hate each other, knives out at Alpine. Uh, great headlines, of course. But let's be realistic. A, a driver's primary function is to beat his teammate because that's the only benchmark, benchmark there is. Um, he's got the same car, the same sort of access to, to strategies and, you know, whatever else. And accordingly, if you beat your teammate, you know that at least you are one better. And this is exactly what each of the drivers want to do. The fact that they don't go and have dinner together or breakfast or don't share a hotel room, honestly, shouldn't, shouldn't really enter into the equation. Uh, it's, it's up to the team bosses to ensure that they extract the best performance out of them. And who knows, maybe this rivalry even works in that direction, in that it, it fires the one up to beat the other and vice versa. So, you know, I, I love it that they aren't the best of mates. Uh, this is actually... 21st century gladiatorial battle. Well, uh, B Bottas finishing eighth for Alfa Romeo, Gasly finishing ninth for Alpine. The final point uh, went to Alex Albon in the Williams. And I think Williams can be very, very pleased with their weekend's work. We talked in the preseason, Dieter. We were, well, you said you were a little bit worried about Williams this year. There's been a lot of upheaval behind the scenes. James Valls has come in as team principal. He's not very experienced at this sort of level. They still don't have a technical director. They've lost some key partners, key sponsors. You said you were a bit worried about them this year but some pretty impressive pace that they showed uh, over the weekend. This is the first time, actually, that they've scored a point in the first race of an F1 season since 2017. And uh, I think a very impressive uh, weekend for Williams. I think they can be very pleased with their, their weekend in Bahrain. Indeed. Uh, however, if we look behind the scenes, and I did speak to Alex about it, and more significantly, I spoke to Yuki Tanoda, who finished one place behind Alex. And I said to him, Yuki, were you, were you unable to catch the Williams? And he said that they just had the top end that we didn't have. And when, when I spoke to Alex, I said, this is what Yuki had said. He said he's absolutely correct. We were at least four KPH faster down the straight than, than anybody else. He said we'd set the car up for low drag. <clears throat> it was very, very tricky to drive. He said we had almost no traction out of slow corners, which is another thing that Yuki pinpointed. Yuki said we had good traction, but no top top end. If we try and relate that to the rest of the year, as I said earlier on, Bahrain has got certain specific characteristics, low-speed corners with traction, but above all, a lot of fast, straight areas, which is what they set the car up for. I think that it's too early to say that Williams will be regular points contenders. 
That said, of course, I'm encouraged by the fact that they that they got a point. Every point in Formula One right now is valuable because, of course, it counts the, towards the prize pot. Yeah, and they only got eight points in the whole of last year, so it's great for them that they've already got one on the board. And it feels to me like Williams need to be concentrating on trying to get as many points on the board as they can in this early part of the season, whilst we've got teams like like Alpha Tauri and like McLaren, who we might expect to be ahead of Williams over the course of a season, obviously not where they want to be at the moment with their development, but if we can expect that the likes of Alpha Tauri and the likes of McLaren might be able to develop their car a bit more than Williams, who, of course, still don't have a technical director, it feels like Williams might be in the situation that we saw uh, Haas and Alpha in last year, where both of those teams scored good points in the beginning of the season and then fell away in the middle of the season as some of the other teams caught up and overtook them in the development race. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, McLaren is is a concern. It really is. It's the third year in a row where they've sort of had aerodynamic imbalances. Yes, I realize they don't have their own wind tunnel. They're using the one in Toyota, which is about 15 years old. Um, but equally, I uh, what concerns me is that we have the same recurring aerodynamic issues. And I did speak to James Key during testing, and he basically said that it was to do with the floor design change. Again, I don't know what the previous floor design was and what base they were working off. However, it is concerning that the same excuses are being trotted out for three years in a row. And I really feel for Lando Norris. Lando apparently for three years now has been saying we have this issue. Whether they disregarded it because he was effectively a rookie when he first spoke about it or not, I don't know. But it is very, very concerning. And I question how much longer Zach Brown and incoming team principal Andrea Stella can actually put up with it. Yes, they're talking about, well, wait till we get the new wind tunnel, etc. But can the Papaya fans actually wait that long? Can the sponsors wait that long? You're talking about waiting until we get the new wind tunnel, but surely then once they get the new wind tunnel, it's going to take two or three years to actually see any, to, for that actually to bear any fruit and to, the, for there to be any noticeable gains in the, in the pace of the McLaren. Absolutely. First of all, you've got the verification process where you've actually got to correlate, you know, wind tunnel to CFD to track. With no testing, that is very difficult because you do it during race weekends. Secondly, everybody's going to have to get to know the nuances of the wind tunnel. So, you know, the whole thing is fairly complex. And I fear that by then this current set of regulations could actually be over. And of course, in the other McLaren is Oscar Piastri, one of the three uh, rookies this year. And unfortunately for him, he was the first retirement of the season, uh, pulling off with an electrical issue on lap 16. Of course, um, last year, there was that big tug of war between Alpine and McLaren over Piastri's services. Ultimately, it was de decreed that uh, McLaren would have his services for 23. If you were Oscar Piastri and you were looking at the state of McLaren and the state of Alpine now, would you be maybe regretting your decision to, uh, to turn down Alpine and move to McLaren? Absolutely not. Okay, why not? Precisely, because let's not forget that although he would have been an Alpine driver, he would actually have been farmed out to Williams. He was not guaranteed a seat. Um, it was fundamentally uh, when, when he signed that contract, Alonso and Ocon were going to be the two Alpine drivers. All that changed after he'd signed the McLaren contract and Fernando went across to, to Aston Martin. We, as you know, published the excerpts, the relevant excerpts from the, um, uh, the CRB verdict. And in that, it was very, very clear that he was being farmed out to Williams on a loan basis for a year, potentially even two years. 
I do believe that during that initial two-year period, he is better off at McLaren than he would have been at, at Williams. So, yes, absolutely. Well, Piastri, one of the three rookies on the 2023 grid. I'm going to include Nick DeVries as a rookie because he's only had the one race. Uh, but the, the rookie who finished highest up uh, was Logan Sargent, who finished in 12th place. I think um, probably the least heralded of the three rookies. Obviously, Piastri won those three junior championships on the bounce, and then he had that tug of war between Alpine and McLaren for his services. Nick DeVries, obviously an F2 champion, a Formula E champion, has raced with distinction in many categories. Logan Sargent finished fourth in F2 last year, probably came into F1 with the least fanfare of the three. But uh, he, he was very, very positive about his debut. He made up two places on the opening lap. And uh, I thought 12th place and uh, backing up Alexander Albon very well. I think he can be very, very pleased with his debut. Absolutely. A, a fine job. Also, very, very well-presented driver. Um, you know, he knows what he's all about. Uh, he does realize that he's a rookie. He's paying his due respects and whatever. I was very, very impressed with Logan. Yes, I was. Uh, equally, um, I was impressed by Nick. Had it not been for the virtual safety car, I think he would have done a lot better. In fact, as Paul Stoddard, our new um, expert columnist, said, uh, he felt that, that Nick was actually the rookie of, of the day uh, or the year, the first race, uh, because of the, uh, the fact that, that that virtual safety car actually camouflaged his true race performance. But I think that between Nick and, and Logan, we have some, some pretty good uh, drivers coming through. And, of course, Oscar Piastri's talent is undisputed. So, yes, absolutely. Three new impressive rookies, first race, great stuff. Yeah, and Logan Sargent, the first uh, American F1 driver since 2015. And what a time for it as well when we have three races in America this year and the sport is really looking to grow in America. Uh, but the next race is in Saudi in two weeks' time at uh, the Jeddah Street Circuit, a very, very fast street circuit. There's been a little bit of a revamp of the circuit uh, for this year's race. You went to Jeddah for us in October, Dieter. Tell us about what you saw and what's going to be different this year. Well, I'm grinning because um, we actually did a lap of the circuit and we could see the roadworks in place and the curbs have been, have been revamped. Uh, they've straightened some of the more blind corners so they almost become straight. It's going to be a ferociously fast circuit, ferociously quick. Um, but at the same time, I believe a bit less dangerous because they've moved walls back. They've straightened some of the, the blinder sweeps. So it's really going to be a, be a cracker. Um, and of course, completely different characteristics, completely to, uh, to uh, Bahrain. And therefore, I don't think that we'll see exactly the same sort of pecking order. I think it will be, I think, undisputedly, Red Bull are the quickest, yes. But I think that with reliability, Ferrari could shape. Um, uh, I think Mercedes could uh, either have bouncing or have to trade uh, performance for, for lack of bouncing. Uh, who else would be quick? I think the Sauber could be pretty quick there. The Aston Martin, of course, we cannot overlook. So, yeah, you know, I think that, that you turn around and say after the first race that, you know, the season's over is very, very, very pessimistic. Well, of course, we very much hope the season isn't over. We've got uh, 23 races all the way through till the end of the year. This is just the second one. And uh, let's hope, well, we had a fantastic race in Jeddah last year. Sergio Perez on pole position, Max Verstappen winning the race. A very, very good battle between himself and Charles Leclerc. And, uh, of course, that's what we want to see. We want to see uh, lots of different drivers battling at the front, capable of winning races. And, uh, well, Dieter, thank you very much for your insights. And we'll be looking forward to hearing from you again 
after the race in Jeddah. Absolutely. Great stuff, Michael. Thank you. And if you'd like to hear more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at Racing Lines. And don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 race weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with another edition next week.